So tonight is the night for joy. Do, maybe we need a little joy, joy in the retreat. Someone told me a few days ago on this retreat, um, she didn't know I was going to be talking about joy, but she told me that some years ago I was giving a talk on joy and she was really angry at me because I was talking about joy. You know, she wasn't in the mood for joy. You know. So I'm talking about joy. I wonder, how, I wonder if the person's in the mood for joy tonight. <laughs> Sometimes we just, you know, there's, it just can be like too much. I don't want to hear about joy. It's not where, where we're at in ourselves. But we'll just see, you know, we'll see what happens as the talk goes on. Um, the Buddha said that we can cultivate joy. We can develop joy in our mind, in our heart, in our body. And there are, there's, a, there's a way, there's a, a pathway for that. So I want to explore that tonight with you. This uh, third arousing uh, factor of awakening. I want to call it natural joy. It's a natural joy. It's a joy that is an expression of the awakened mind and awakened heart. When, when the mind and the heart are in balance, joy naturally awakens, naturally is expressed. So we develop this joy. Uh, this is one of the ways that we bring energy. We're talking about energy as one of the factors the energy to know what actually interferes with joy. We start to investigate, use this, in fa- this factor of wise investigation to actually look to see what, what is happening that the joy is absent, what's, what's getting in the way, what interferes. And so... John was speaking about this aspect of, of energy or effort that we, we use this to, to develop and maintain these beautiful states, these wholesome states of mind and heart. And we can develop that and maintain them kind of like a maintenance of these states by seeing what actually it interferes. So we avoid those conditions and we can we learn how to overcome them so that they're not obstacles for us along the way and this morning john used these beautiful words rather than avoid and overcome he said recognize and release which is a really lovely way to think about them bringing the mindfulness in recognizing what's actually occurring and then supporting ourselves through our understanding to release let go to let go of those conditions that are bringing about more pain and suffering for us. And so this is what we are investigating. We're investigating, the Buddha talks about what gives rise to suffering and pain, what gives rise to the release of that suffering and pain, which brings about more happiness and well-being. This is, we're investigating into that. That's what wise investigation is. And we bring our energy to that investigation, our, our, our interest and our energy, and make some effort to uh, recognize what those conditions are and begin to release and, and let go. So when we talk about this developing and maintaining, you know, in a way it is sort of like a, a maintenance program, <laughs> you know, maintaining these, uh, in this case, these beautiful factors of awakening, of mindfulness, investigation, and energy, this balance of energy, uh, which brings about a quality of joy, which I'll talk about and explore with you, and the tranquility or calm, a concentration, a mind that is one-pointed and focused, present, and the equanimity that comes about, when we're not caught in the reactivity, when we're not caught in the conditions that bring about pain and sorrow. We, can, we feel more of the equanimity. And so this is really partly what we're developing and what we're wanting to find if we can uh, strengthen and stabilize 
these uh, qualities within ourselves so that they're present more of the time. We have access to these awakened factors, mental factors, more of the time. So there's an actual technology here. There's a, a technology that we're working with so that we can begin to experience more and more joy, more and more uh, feelings of ease and well-being. This is, this is what we want. But generally, we don't know how to get it. Like the Buddha talks about, we get confused. We, we, we get in, involved in activities that don't necessarily bring about more happiness and more pleasure. We actually do things in a way that brings about more pain. And so we want to understand what it is, what is it we're doing? How do we get ourselves in this tangle? How do we get ourselves in this knot of unhappiness when what we really want is happiness? What we really want is this release from our pain. Fundamentally, we are really hardwired to seek after pleasure to seek that which feels good, to, to want that joy and that pleasure in our experience, and to avoid pain, to, to move away from that which is painful. That's very instinctual, it's animal, it's really wired in us, it's programmed in us. So when the mind started to evolve and become more sophisticated, we started to be able to think about things. And when we can think about things and reflect on things, things start getting more complicated, more complex. And we start to make meaning out of things, but the meaning sometimes that we're making isn't actually so helpful. We can confuse things and make things more complex. And so what we find is that sometimes when we're seeking pleasure, we actually wind up in more painful states. You know, like some kind of seeking for pleasure through the senses, you know, food or um, uh, uh, alcohol or, you know, drugs or those kinds of things that actually give us more pleasure ultimately bring us more pain because we find that we're getting ourselves in some kind of a, a pattern of uh, addiction or compulsion and we're not actually able to get ourselves out of that and that becomes very painful. So, so usually we are seeking pleasure when there's not really a deep understanding of the source of our happiness, the source of our pleasure. We're seeking that happiness through what's called the worldly feelings. And Gil was starting to talk about this in his talk as well. The worldly feelings of the senses the five senses, the flesh, the eyes and the ears and the nose and the tongue and the skin, and then our thinking, our thoughts, our memories, our stories. And that's really where we start to seek this pleasurable feeling, you know, this, that we're, we're kind of wired to, to seek after. Because sometimes we don't know that there's anything else. We don't know there's any other source of pleasure. There's any other source of happiness. So we think all there is is just this body and the mind, the, the senses, the eyes, the sights, the sounds, the smells. And so we're, we're, we, we, there's the habit of seeking through those, those senses to get that pleasurable feeling, which is called Vedana. In the, in, the, in the teachings, uh, the Pali word is Vedana. So we're going after that feeling. I want the feeling, right? And you could even see this in your meditation uh, experiences where you're wanting, most likely, a feeling that feels good as opposed to a feeling that doesn't feel good. And there can, we can start to create some patterns of resistance and aversion and rejection and kind of get c- contracted about it and angry about it and struggle about it because we're not getting what we want. We're not getting the meditation experience that we want. So the same patterning that we experience outside of our meditation, we can see start to come into our meditation. Of this, it was seeking the pleasurable feeling. 
as if somehow we're going to find that through the flesh, through, through our experience of the senses. And it's usually pitted against pain. So we're at pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain. And we just keep finding ourselves caught in this kind of duality of opposites where we go back and forth and back. It's pleasurable, then painful, pleasurable, then painful. And sometimes it's actually not either one. It's actually pretty neutral or pretty boring, (laughs) somewhat. You're sort of like, well, why isn't more happening? You know, nothing's happening. There's, you know, I thought this was going to be, you know, more pleasurable or more joyful or, you know, some great stuff was going to happen. But actually, it feels very kind of like nothing much at all. So it can move between these different kinds of experiences. But we can still seem to be looking in through the lens of the the flesh, or what we would call ordinary, worldly feeling. And that that kind of seeking is, is usually so that we will avoid the pain. It often is caught up in our strategies of avoidance and our strategies of denial, and our strategies of rejection, because we don't want to feel the painful or the difficult aspects of our experience. So there can almost be a kind of fear, and sometimes a a worry that, and some people were talking about this, that, uh uh-oh, you know, just around the corner, if it's going to be these really difficult or these challenging feelings. And if I really just stay present and open and uh, stay connected to my experience, something horrible might happen. Something terrible might come up from the deep, you know, and kind of surprise me and scare me. And I don't know if I can handle it. And so there can kind of be a way that we're just sort of holding on a little bit to the, to our experience so it doesn't get, doesn't change or, you know, get hard or difficult, you know, and sometimes you can feel that little bit of fear that just lives in the, in the body and in the mind. So we just wonder, we don't know what's around the corner. So that can set up the addiction, that kind of the addictive wanting of this pleasurable experience, you know, wanting something good or you know, even neutral sometimes is better than the, than the really the challenging or the difficult. And you can see how, you know, in, um, how we can start to think that if, if something does start to feel more difficult or more challenging, and we're, even if it's a physical thing, we're having more pain or we're having some difficult, strong emotions or our mind is very scattered and restless, we can start to personalize it and think that something's wrong with me. Like... I'm, this is, John was talking about the doubt, you know, that I start, can start to feel doubtful that you know, I can't really do this and it's not going very well and I'm not doing this very well and there must be a way to do this better. And, and we, we start, to, start to think something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with the practice. Something's wrong with the teachings. Something's wrong sometimes with the teachers. Something's wrong with the place. It's like... Something's wrong. This kind of we, we can call this something's wrong mentality, right? And 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 it's like a, a coloration, you know, this kind of mind state that sometimes when it comes, almost colors. It's like wearing colored glasses, and you've heard that analogy, where you're like putting on these colored glasses, and everything you see, something's wrong. It's just not right, and you can't get to right. Because it just seems like everything's wrong. So where's right? And you just can feel like you're just caught in, in this kind of uh, wheel. Kind of like sometimes you can feel like you're on a wheel trying to get somewhere, trying to make it different, trying to get your experience to be right or better or feel good in a way that we imagine that it can. So this kind of, then we get into a sense that we need to keep fixing this tinkering and meddling, muddling, you know, we're going to, what can I do? What can I do to make it better? I must be able to do this or that or this or that, you know. We're just tinkering in our practice because we think something's wrong or even that something's, that I'm bad in some way. Sometimes it can really, we can get really personalized in this, you know, that I'm bad. Something's really wrong and bad with me. 
So it gets very, very, we can get very identified with a sense of I or me, the self comes in here, that it's really about what I'm doing. And that energy, then the energy that we are um, feeling and, and ha- that we have in our aliveness, in our being, gets turned towards trying to fix ourselves. Because something's wrong, because I'm wrong, we're trying to fix that problem. My, me, I'm a problem. You know, fix the problem. And then we can, you know, this can be a lifelong project, right? You know, it's sort of like the self-improvement project, you know, that we just kind of get on that treadmill and we're just constantly in the sense of trying to improve ourselves. And you can see how it can be sometimes moment to moment to moment to moment, you know, trying to tinker and fix what's going on. One of my colleagues talks about this self-improvement um, strategy and he's, he, he owns a, a home and he said, you know, self-improvement is like home improvement. He says, you know, there's always the next thing that needs to be fixed or needs to be tended to and it never gets done. You know, for those of you who may own a home, you know that there's always the next thing that needs to be improved. The self, when we have this sense of a self that needs to be improved, it's the same. It never gets done. There's always going to be the next thing that needs to be fixed. And so there's this sense that the happiness, this pleasurable feeling of this happiness that we're really seeking is always just around the corner. Once I get this, then... I'll be happy, right? Once I get this fixed or this problem solved or this thing in place, this situation resolved, then I'll, then I'll be okay, then I'll be happy. There's always that sense, it's just right around the corner. And because of that mind, that mind state, because of the way we're thinking and believing, we don't see and feel the root of the happiness that is right here. That is right here. That right here now, there is something beautiful. There is something exquisite. There is something joyful that is right here. As one of my teachers in India used to say, you are knee-deep in grace. You are knee-deep in grace. You're knee-deep in joy. You're knee-deep in pleasure. And you, we don't recognize it, right? Don't recognize it. So that recognizing and releasing, recognizing and releasing, releasing the conditions, the patterns that obscure us knowing that, knowing what's available to us right now. Somebody turned me on to some poo, piglet and poo little quotations, which are just so lovely. I, I re, you know, revisit these every now and then and gave me this one cartoon where Pooh is walking along with piglet and I'll, I'll, I'll put the cartoon up on the board because it's absolutely wonderful, just uh, Pooh walking along with piglet. And uh, Pooh says to piglet, what day is it, piglet? And he said, it's today, squeaked Piglet. And Pooh said, my favorite day. (laughs) My favorite day. And that's a little bit that attitude, right? You just drop for a moment into that. It's like, ah, right. My favorite day. Is that possible? Is it possible for this day to be the favorite day? So this releasing, releasing, releasing the holding, releasing the grasping, releasing our hold on the need for this sensual pleasure or for the mind to be in a particularly pleasurable state. Beginning to release that, what we call the worldly pleasure. This, a few months ago, I was in uh, Saskatchewan, Canada, where I go and teach uh, a couple of times a year. I was teaching a day long there, and uh, it was a Saturday evening after my day long, I went back to the house that I was staying at, and um, 
Saturday night there was a big football game on in Saskatchewan. It was probably September, so the weather was still pretty mild. It wasn't like 30 below zero yet with 10 feet of snow, which comes later. But uh, it was pretty mild. And um, so there was a big football game with what's called the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And the, in, in this is a relatively small city, and so football is huge. I didn't know this until Saturday night. I found out, but it was a big, big deal. And everybody who is a football fan of, this, of the Rough Riders, and then the team that was playing this Rough Riders came to Saskatchewan. So I was in the house... Um, I think I was quite far from the stadium. I'm sure it was a couple of miles or more than that. And I was, I was in a meditative state. I was working with my teachings, and you know, it was a two-day retreat, so it was the retreat was going to continue on to the next day. And the game, when the game began, I, I mean, I didn't even know really so much about the timing and all of that. But as soon as things started going. It was as if the whole city, once, the, once, the, once there started to be some movement of the football towards the goal, and then the goal, probably when the goal was made, it was as if the whole city erupted in this cheering and this like, wow! You know, it was almost like the, you could feel like the city levitating in joy. And it, clearly it was the home team who was making the goal because the visiting team probably wouldn't have been, you know, there wouldn't have been as many people and it wouldn't have been so uh, intense. But the interesting thing is that it was actually happening fairly frequently. So there'd be the lull and then there'd just be this explosion of sound again, of the cheering and the joy. And then bombs would go off and then bands would play and then band, you know, the, the cymbals and the drums and then, you know, and then it'd be quiet again. And then this <laughs> eruption would happen again. And it was phenomenal in terms of the intensity of the joy, the intensity of the happiness. I mean, there were probably, you know, a few thousand people who it, together were experiencing this worldly pleasure <laughs> through, the, through the senses of the sight of seeing the ball, one little ball go over this line. <laughs> and this, the ritual <laughs> of the association of having that ball go over the line and the intensity of the worldly pleasure, of the feeling. It was phenomenal of the association and the ritual that was, was um, uh, caught up in that. And what was, I was thinking was that the joy was so intense that I think there were a number of people who were having out-of-body experiences <laughs> so that it actually became religious. I mean, that the joy became, because that line, I think that line between the worldly pleasure and the unworldly, where it starts to go out of the world, when you start to experience that beyond the flesh, is a, when it becomes a religious experience, a spiritual experience. And I'm, there were, I'm sure there were so many people who were having these out-of-body religious experiences because it was so intense. So you, you see, so it just starts, there's this continuum where I think it is what is people are actually wanting. And when you can take the joy to that extreme through the senses, one starts to touch that out-of-the-world experience, which we're so, we're so deeply longing for that spiritual experience, that or we might call it a religious experience, I mean, whatever it is that we're seeking, we, go, we can go through, we think we can go through the senses to get there. But it ends. It doesn't last. It may actually, it's a true experience of joy and ecstasy and pleasure. And, you know, it's wonderful to experience those kinds of experiences. But it doesn't last. It ends. It stops like a thud. It's over. 
And the interesting thing is that after the game, you know, you could, there's a lot of people who are still trying to keep the pleasure going. And then the next sounds that I started hearing were a lot of police cars and sirens, right? Because people are trying to keep that going, you know, through alcohol or, you know, getting into trouble or, you know, different things like that. And so the, the kind of the eruptions just kept going after the, after the game, but it was then leading to more pain. So the pleasure the sukha, the, that, that joy that starts to lead to more pain and suffering, not only for oneself, but for others as well. It's a very interesting cycle. We start to go through the senses and through the mind, trying to find that pleasure, trying to seek for that pleasure. I was thinking in, the, in this situation, there was immense amount of energy, right? The factor of energy was very powerful, and a lot of joy, but not a lot of wise mindfulness necessarily, and investigation. And investigation, the investigation really is looking into the causes for more liberation, you know, the more uh, the causes for more awakening, the more uh, opening to, to the good and to the wholesome and to the benefit. Probably not a lot of that going on in this case. So we're turning these factors towards that which is going to be beneficial, that which is actually going to uh, support the liberation, to support the awakening for ourselves and for others. If we could have channeled, if we could have kind of uh, packaged that energy, you know, maybe someday they'll have technology to be able to do that, like solar power or wind power or something. Take the energy from the football stadiums, you know, and then be able to channel that energy towards the good, you know, towards the benefit, you know, towards, towards freeing this world, freeing this country from pain and suffering. How amazingly powerful that will be. Because that's a lot of energy. And so we can consider... You know, where are we putting our energy? How are we channeling our energy? Because we have a lot, generally. If, we're, if it's not suppressed and if it's not held, held down in some way, that we can bring this energy forth for the good. Channeling something in this, in this world to change this world. So that's the, uh, the worldly, the worldly Feeling, and now we're we're seeking. We're trying to seek some some kind of um, sustaining and maintaining of the pleasure, of the joy, of the of the good feeling, but but through the senses and the and the mind, and we and we see that that comes and goes. It changes all the time. We can't. It doesn't. It's it doesn't last. So then the Buddha talks about what's called unworldly feeling. It's a very interesting thing, this unworldly feeling. And the unworldly feeling has to do with renunciation and letting go. And letting go. Letting go of the grasping onto what we think is going to bring us happiness through the the sensual pleasure. And, And turning the mind inward, turning the mind, as we do in our meditation, turning the mind into awareness, into a conscious attention, to wise attention, letting go of our grasping, letting go of the holding on to what we think is going to do it for us, because we see that that's just continue, continuing that contraction and the pain, the tightness and of holding on our attachments, um, our confusion uh, to to that which doesn't seem to be working for us. So, so this, so the unworldly, the non. He talks about the non-sensual joy, the non-sensual pleasure, which has to do with the letting go. And this is from the Buddha, from the Suttanapatta where he says, in every direction there are things you know and recognize. Leave them. Do not look to them for rest or relief. 
Do not let consciousness dwell on the products of existence, on things that come and go. The products of existence that, that come about through the eyes, the, we, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the things we touch, the things, the things, the objects of this world, the mental formations, do not hold on to these. Don't look to them for rest or relief because they come and they go. They're not going to last. We start to, as we let go and we feel more into our experience right here in the moment without holding on to these uh, uh, objects that are arising and passing the, uh, through the sights and the sounds and the taste and the smells and the touch on our skin and the, the formations of the mind, what we start to see, we can perhaps start to feel this seed of pleasure that is not dependent on anything at all. It is, it's an independent, it's a pleasure that we start to sense and feel simply because we are aware. Simply because we're present. Simply because we are here. A mind that is not wanting anything else to happen or need to happen, but more and more this sense of being able to allow and accept whatever is arising and passing to come and go. And we remain in the awareness of that itself. We remain in the presence of that itself. And the more that we actually start to feel and sense the mindful awareness, we start to sense that there's actually pleasure right there. There's something very pleasurable and even joyful about being present. And it's not about the, 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 the stuff of the experience. It's not about what I'm thinking about or what I'm feeling or, or what's happening. It's because I'm here with it. Because I'm, the awareness is bright. Because the awareness is present. And that itself brings about a pleasurable and joyful feeling. This is, what, this, is uh, uh, this famous quote from uh, William Blake. And I've been reading it lately because I just think it's so profound. I mean, what it's actually pointing to is, is, is just the same as the Buddhist teachings. And William Blake said, he who binds, him, he who binds himself Binds to, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Right? He who binds himself to that joy, he who holds on to that joy does the winged life destroy. We destroy life by holding on to it. Because life, I love that, winged life. The winged life. Because it's moving and shifting and changing and constantly alive and vital. And if we hold on to that or try to manipulate it or tinker with it or grab onto it or, or try to make it a certain way, then there's a way we're kind of destroying that. If we're doing that with fear and with worry, and with grasping, we destroy it. But, but she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. The sun eternally shines, the light, the radiance of that sun. So what we are, what we are wanting to investigate is the way that we hold on, that grasping, that, that holding that then begins to, to hurt or destroy the life that we are actually trying to feel and to know. 
And as we let go, as we release, the awareness is more available to be present. The awareness is more available to be connected, to be engaged with what's here and now. It's like the, 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 the grasping through our thinking about what we think should happen actually creates a kind of um, imprisonment. We get imprisoned in our own ideas, in our own beliefs. And we lose that sense of the vitality, the feel of the vitality of what's here. The awareness gets bound up. So with the awareness, there's a, as the awareness opens up, we can feel a kind of a release and then a kind of gathering, a gathering and a coming together, a unifying, kind of a landing more fully here in the present moment. And from this place, then we can look out. Then we can engage through the eyes and through the the nose and the the smells and the tastes and the feel on the skin because that's life. What else is life? Life is the five senses and the mind. It's not like we're trying to get away from that. We're trying to open to it and not interfere with the way life is moving so that we can begin to understand and learn and come in contact with and develop and grow and deepen in our wisdom and deepen in our understanding. So we're opening, letting go and opening to life, opening to, this, to, the, to, the, be, to the beauty that's here and also to the pain that's here opening to all of life as we open, because that's really how we deepen. That's how we grow. That's how we expand. That's how we we become wiser and more compassionate beings. And as we do that, that awareness and the energy and the the, uh, mindfulness start to get stronger and more stable, and as that happens, it becomes more condensed, And the joy starts to get stronger. The joy of that presence, the joy, the mindfulness. We become full, full of what's happening, full of our experience. And the the, the being itself is fully aware. And the joy and the pleasure start to come through that state itself. This nat and the natural interest, the natural energy, the natural, uh, uh, like childlike way of being in the world, where everything starts to become more interesting, and we've become more connected and and more awake. Another, another, um, poo piglet and poo. Piglet's walking with Pooh, and Piglet says to Pooh, supposing a tree fell down, Pooh, when we were underneath it. Supposing it didn't, said Pooh. <laughs> After careful thought, Piglet was comforted by this. <laughs> After careful thought, Piglet was comforted by this. All right? so simple. The mind, you know, the mind just starts to fabricate this, my God, what if a tree falls and I'm under it, right? It's like, oh my God. And then the, the counter thought, maybe it, maybe it wouldn't, right? Supposing it didn't. Ah, right? relaxation, breathing out. Right? This play, right? This is the play that we're engaged in. The, the fear, the worry, the restlessness and the agitation. And then as we develop and we cultivate more of the wisdom and the compassion and the understanding, then the voice comes in, supposing it didn't. Ah, right? But this is what's happening day, and mo- moment after moment after moment. We see the mind coming up, and then uh, hopefully there's enough wisdom there to help us relax again and let go. 
this dance, this play of the mind, awareness and wisdom, fear, worry and hope. So, I want to talk about these two mental factors that actually can help us understand a little bit more about what actually brings about the mindfulness and the investigation, the energy and the joy. And these two factors are called vitaka and vichara. There are two factors that we engage in our, in, our, in our mindfulness all the time. Every time we're mindful, this is what we're working with. The vitaka is, the, is when we actually initially direct our mindfulness towards something that we're experiencing. It's kind of the aiming. It's when we aim our mindfulness at something or we connect our mindfulness with our experience. For example, when we return to the breath. We're actually directing our attention to a sensation that we call our breath. It's a vitaka. It's that movement of aiming, or we call it a directed energy, uh, directed, sometimes called directed thought, where we're actually intentionally directing our, our mindfulness, our awareness. It's called initial application. And, and as we do this again and again, this is what starts to gather or, or unify the mind because we're, we're continuing to direct that energy, that attention towards our experience, the present moment, again and again and again. And there's usually some intentionality with this. And so hopefully there's also some wisdom with the intention because we, we hope that we're turning our attention towards that which is actually going to be supportive and helpful and wholesome. We're not directing our attention towards that um, uh, thought about our relationship that is so awful and giving us so much trouble and we just think about it and think about it and think about it and it's like that's not actually bringing us a lot of happiness. And so redirecting the attention towards something that's actually going to bring about a little bit more openness and happiness. So this, this directing our, our attention, this vitaka, and we can begin to direct that as, for example, towards the, the loving-kindness meditation or towards a compassion meditation, uh, that which is going to start to cultivate and develop more happy and pleasurable and joyful states. This is a a way that we can start to turn the mind and support ourselves in this way. Um, We do this um, anytime we want to come more fully into the present moment. This is balanced with what's called vichara. And the vichara is actually that which sustains our attention with the experience. One is the initial contact, making the contact. But then, just having the contact isn't really going to bring about much of a relationship with that thing. But as we sustain our attention, and we keep our attention there a little bit, a little bit more, then it's like rubbing, we call it rubbing the attention with the object whether it's a sight, something we're looking at, the turkeys, the turkeys are very entertaining here. You know, really just we're directing our attention to the turkeys and then we sustain our attention on the turkeys and we're noticing the feathers and the sounds and the relationships they have with each other and and the funny way they walk and where they are. And we start to really understand a little bit more about the turkeys, particularly if you've never really seen turkeys before. And it's like, oh, there's this whole world of turkeys here. Sometimes they're not around on retreat, but they happen to be around quite a lot this time. And so it's through that sustaining of the attention that we start to learn and to listen and explore and 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 come into a relationship with, and even some intimacy. It's where we start to become more and more intimate with our experience. And, and we start to connect more deeply through that intimacy. 
And we can do this with anything. You know, we do with our eating meditation. We gave some instructions around eating. And it's the same thing. Um, we, we oft, in the past, we've done it with raisins here in the, in, the, in the hall where we passed out raisins. And so people would pick up a raisin and make contact. So you see the raisin, you know, feel the raisin, you know, and then put the raisin in the mouth and start rolling it around on the tongue. And that's sustaining the attention. So you're really getting to know that raisin, the softness and the texture, and then biting into the raisin, and then this burst of flavor, and the sweetness, and how long the sweetness lasts, and noticing that wanting to swallow it and get that pleasurable hit, you know, and then going. And so it's like, wow, a whole relationship with this raisin. Like one little tiny raisin that I might not have ever even considered before. It's like entering into that whole world, that, that world of intimacy with the raisin. And, and we can do this with, with anything. So this is available to us, this possibility. And through that too, we're starting to gather data. We gather information about something that we didn't have before. We're gathering knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And this is what we're doing in our practice by making contact with different aspects of our experience and sustaining that attention. When our attention isn't scattered, when the mind isn't scattered and being, you know, pulling us in all different directions all over the place and this thought and that memory and this and I want to go here and I'm restless here and I'm afraid about that. But when the mind starts to get more quiet and the energy is freed up from all those tight little feedback loops in the mind, when that contracted mind starts to free up, there's energy that's released. We feel more brightness in our awareness. We're able to direct that attention towards different aspects in our experience and sustain that attention It's like worlds start opening up to us. Usually, it's the world of me, the world of I. This, I can can start to find out about me, who am I? I can start to understand about my patterns and my feelings and my emotions. And that helps me understand other people too, because we're not so different. Other people have similar kinds of feelings and emotions and thoughts. And I open up to my world. I start to engage more fully with the world, learn about this is this childlike, kind of a a childlike innocence that starts to come in for us. And as we're more connected to the present moment and as we're more engaged with here, being here, I can start to respond more wisely and more compassionately because I'm actually here. I'm not lost in my thoughts about things, my fears about things, my worries about things. I'm actually here with myself, with you, with the, with the situation, with the environment, with the animals. With, and I can respond. I can respond, I can engage, and I can make adjustments, I can make changes based on what's needed at any given time. This is really how our wisdom starts to come forth. Our compassion starts to come forth. And we're, we deve- we're, we're, in, in, we're developing and cultivating and strengthening and stabilizing these beautiful qualities of our being as we open more and more to the present moment. They feed on each other more mindfulness and energy and joy and investigation, more um, uh, sustaining of those qualities. They're like food. It's like nourishment. It starts to feed on itself. It starts to grow, get stronger, develop. And, and, And I become that. You become that. We become more and more of those, those qualities themselves, more present, more, more compassionate, more wise, more engaged. This is how, this is the process we're engaged in here. Mm-hmm. How we grow and we develop.
So our task really is to see now whether we can stay here with our experience because we want to see as we do that what actually interferes with our capacity to be present. What's getting in the way? What, what blocks that? And as we begin to know that more and understand that more, then we can work with that. We can start to have, we can develop more skillful understanding and skillful means and begin to apply that understanding from a place of wisdom and intelligence. We're not tinkering with our experience out of fear and resistance and thinking something's wrong or like I'm a problem or something's wrong with me or, or something's wrong with the situation. It's because it's just the way it is. It's just the way things are. And when, I, when I open to things the way they are, I see, yeah, there could, you know, do something here to bring about, you know, a little bit more joy, a little bit more open-heartedness, um, kind of breathe more deeply into the belly, I pay attention a little bit more, bring more energy up when I feel really tired. You know, making little adjustments in this way. You're coming from a place of wisdom, place of clear, clear seeing. The motivation from where we're moving from is very different than when we're caught in our, our fears and our ideas about who, who I am and what we think are going to happen. So we're giving ourselves permission, giving ourselves permission to feel the joy, giving ourselves permission to feel the pain, giving ourselves permission to feel even the ordinariness. Start to feel, start to sense, start to allow more and more what's here so that this awareness can get stronger, more stable, and more and more we begin to feel the pleasure in the awareness itself. Pleasure in the contact of here itself. So finishing with this poem from Li Po. You ask me why I make my home in the mountain forest and I smile and I'm silent, and even my soul remains quiet. It lives in the other world which no one owns. The peach trees blossom, the water flows. The peach tree blossoms, the water flows. Let's sit for a few minutes together. <clears throat> 